0: Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary! Hey everyone, and welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary! This is gonna be the Luke 9 episode. Oh man, it's so glad to be back. I've got my smooth shoes, I've got my cool tattoos, my hair's pumped as tight as can be, so let's get right into this. Uh, Real quick, I just want to say thank you to you for stopping by and listening and just enjoying this, this process, this podcast. Uh, with me as we've been reading the book of Luke together. Um, it's, it's, again, I say it every week, but that's because it's true. It's been a lot of fun. And I've loved hearing from some of you guys on, uh, on the Facebook page and things like that. So thank you guys for, for helping me out and for listening and getting a lot out of it and digging into the story and, and supporting what we're doing. It's, it's been, it's been good. Um, couple, uh, ambiguous announcements. We are going to have a contest for you guys, for you listeners coming up soon. So, uh, if you want to be a part of that, stay, pay attention to the Facebook page. And then also we might have some special things in store for you the next couple weeks here on the podcast that might actually include a special guest. So we'll, uh... We'll, we'll see if it all works out. I'm hoping it works logistically, but uh, yeah, let's go ahead and jump right into it. I'm sorry I didn't get this episode out last week like I wanted to, um, but we are in just the busiest crushing time of the year uh, at work. Um, like I, As you may know, I'm a, I'm a children's pastor, and um, we are in the midst of summer programming. We're launching a brand new kids program um, this summer, it starts in July, so I only have a couple more weeks to get it ready, and I'm also taking kids to camp for a week, in a couple weeks, and also attending a denominational conference, so I'm just getting slammed right now, so I'm at least sitting down to record this one now, um, hopefully the Luke 10 episode will be out on schedule, but, uh, even then I I can't make any promises, because I just have no idea what my life is going to be like, and, uh, when I have time from work, I want to make sure I'm giving time to my son and my wife and my family and stuff like that, and, uh, uh, making them be like, where's dad? So, um, so yeah, so, so stick with me if the schedule for the next couple of weeks is a little goofy, but, uh, let's go ahead and get into it. We are going to start with, uh, Luke in two minutes. This time we're going to focus on a theme. Um, it, coming up in Luke nine and 10, there's going to be some key questions about Jesus's identity as people start to question it with a little bit more intensity. So what we're going to do is we are going to look back and in two minutes, I'm going to try and go through every instance of Jesus being identified by someone else. Um, And even by himself, I have some of those on the list. So this will be interesting, um, because in Luke, um, he's identified in a lot of different ways. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. Here we go. On your mark. Get set. Go! Okay, so very at the beginning of Luke, we have um, an angel talking to Zechariah, even before uh, Jesus or his parents are are even in the story. Um, And they say that that their son John is going to prepare the way for, quote-unquote, the Lord. Um, then Jesus' name is given to Mary when it's, when it's pronounced by the same angel that uh, Jesus is going to be born. And she says, uh, the angel says to name him Jesus, which means God saves. And so remember, names are part of your identity in ancient culture. Um, then the angel also says to Mary that Jesus is going to be the son of the Most High, quote-unquote. That he's going to get the throne of David, so he's already a messianic, kingly figure. That he'll be, quote-unquote, born of the Holy Spirit and be holy and called the son of God. So those are all going to be parts of his identity. Um, Elizabeth, when Elizabeth meets Mary, says, The mother of my Lord. Um the angels uh when they talk to the shepherds says, Go and see the Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord, born. Um so all those terms again a, a few times being used to describe Jesus. Simeon says just because he's God's salvation for Gentiles and for Israel. God's voice from heaven says, This is my son, the beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. Satan says, If you are the son of God, so he calls his identity into question. People in Nazareth say things like, Isn't this Joseph's son? So Jesus seemed the Lord, the Messiah, but just Joseph's kid. Um, Jesus is, is uh, characterized as being a prophet, like Elijah or Elisha. The demons call Jesus the Holy One of God, and you are the Son of God, as they come as they get expelled from people. Um, Peter says once calls him Master Lord. A leper calls him Lord. Um, so again, there's that Greek word. Um, Pharisees uh, often say, "Who is this? Who is this?" And they also call him one who eats and drinks, which remember is like a, an actual crime you could accuse someone of. Um, Jesus calls himself the son of man Jesus calls himself the lord of the sabbath the centurion who has great faith calls him lord Um, there's a crowd at a funeral that says he's a great prophet John calls him the one who is to come uh jesus in quoting others calls himself a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners so that's interesting uh simon the pharisee says uh that he's not a prophet the people in simon's house though say who is this that has the ability to forgive sins so again they're questioning his identity um, the disciples on the boat say who then is this again questioning his identity legion of the demons again call him son of the most high god and i'm out of time so uh so yeah so lots of different titles um so, uh, Messiah, or to remember is a, a savior figure that the Hebrew people were waiting for, um, often, um, who was thought to probably be, uh, not just a prophet, but like a royal figure. So when you see, you know, son of God, remember son of God is a royal figure in Greek, um, uh, you know, or the Holy one of God is, 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 is kind of has a chosenness kind of uh, a selected person kind of quality to it. So, um, A lot of Jesus's identity in the story just kind of circles around kind of those themes of kind of being a royal figure, kind of being a prophet, kind of being um, divine in some ways that again, remember this in their culture, they had no, um, you know, there wasn't a Trinitarian concept of God. So to be the son of God, that was even kind of ambiguous in itself. So who knows even what that exactly means, you know, in a sense, Um, let's go ahead and continue on into Luke nine and we'll see how people uh, struggle with Jesus's identity there in part of the story. All right, so the story begins like this in the text. Then Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, not even an extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. Wherever they do not welcome you, as you are leaving that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They departed and went through the villages, bringing the good news and curing diseases everywhere. Now Herod the ruler heard all about that, what had taken place, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the ancient prophets had arisen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he tried to see him. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all they had done. He took them with him and withdrew privately to a city called Bethsaida. Then when the crowds found out about it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed to be cured. So we're going to go ahead and stop right here. Um, A little bit of a longer section. I'm trying that out this week to do longer sections so the story doesn't seem so choppy. Um, But yeah, here we go. Right at the beginning, we have Jesus authorizing the 12, quote unquote. So remember, when someone is kind of sent, um, there's that Greek word, you know, apostolos, you know, someone who is sent as like a messenger and they are given special authority to kind of represent and carry the weight and the power and the, uh, even like the political social authority of the person who sent them, um... So um, we're not talking about, when we talk about the 12, sometimes they're called the 12 disciples, but remember when we say the 12, as, as of right now, Jesus has a lot of disciples. He has lots of students and lots of people following him, but there's 12 in particular that were kind of chosen and allotted a a specific role and and so he's calling those 12 together and he sends them out and um it's really interesting that this is happening right here because in the story of luke in the last chapter jesus just criticized them for their lack of faith you know when they were on the boat and now here he is saying yeah you people with not very much faith you know you're kind of untrustworthy but here i'm giving you all my power and authority to go represent me isn't isn't that interesting? Um, so he's sending them out, and he gives them some specific instructions. You know, take nothing. You know, for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money. Um, so uh, in in ancient Israel, at least uh, throughout the ancient Mediterranean, but really particularly in Israel, there was actually laws and social customs regarding um, if someone was traveling through your town, you were expected to invite them to come over and and stay and, and experience hospitality at your house so they had a safe place, you know, to eat and to sleep and stuff like that. Um, it's actually in the Old Testament laws. There's things about that. Um, and so Jesus is sending them out saying, you know, expect people to take you in. Expect people to be hospitable. Um, also, something that could be going on here, this is kind of interesting, Jesus has to take no back. Now, other um, philosophical groups in the in the ancient Near East, in the Greek world especially, um, would, uh, would kind of take on a, a particular stance of, of kind of living that kind of like traveling in poverty kind of in that sense. But they would take a bag that they would use to beg. So like the cynics, like the not cynics, like when we call someone cynical, but the cynics, capital C, like the philosophical group, they would take a bag with them and use that to beg. And Jesus is here saying, don't take a bag. Like you're not going around to beg, like expect people to take care of you, but go be part of their household, you know, and stuff like that. Um, and you're not, you're not taking anything with you when you leave their house, you know, um, you're just living day to day. Um, so it's kind of interesting. He has gives them this, this interesting instruction of, um, if you're not welcomed, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Um, now what that's, what that's probably alluding to is that um, when you entered a holy place, you know, you would take off your shoes and, and you would probably clean in some ways um, the idea of not bringing in... Um, unclean or pagan even dust on your feet when you went to somewhere. So so kind of as a as a visual statement, you know, as a prophetic act almost, you know, like you know, as you're leaving that town, shake that dust off your feet so they know that hey, like they missed out on something, like something holy passed by. You could say even the kingdom of God was coming by and they missed it. So just like we saw in the in the lesson that Jesus teaches about the soils, like he kind of fully understands that some people are going to be ready to listen and be accepting to the message and the mission of what these people are on. And some people won't, you know, and don't seek revenge on them. Just shake the dust off your feet and then go on. You know, so it's kind of interesting. Um, he uses this phrase kingdom of God twice. Um, Luke does, um, in this passage, um, they set out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And then Jesus, when the crowd comes to him at the end, he speaks to them about the kingdom of God. Um, now this phrase kingdom of God of any Bible, book in the Bible, um, it's used most often in Luke. Luke loves this phrase. Um, and it, it's kind of tricky because um, it's not like Luke at any moment sits down and says, oh, and here is what the kingdom of God means. It's always kind of like the kingdom of God is here or the kingdom of God is passing by or they're going to go proclaim the kingdom of God. Um, so to those who aren't in Luke's uh, immediate audience who might not know exactly what this means, it seems to mean it's a term used to, to um, talk about the both present and future like rule of God, like in the, in the land, in their place, in their life, in their community. So, um, you know, in Jesus's thesis statement, in the first speech he gives way back, and I think it's in Luke four, Jesus gives the statement that he's here to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. So Jesus seems to think that the kingdom of God is kind of present at the moment, and that this is a good thing for people, um... You know, um, you know, and it also presents Jesus as a royal figure as he's spoken of, you know, being the son of God, the Messiah, the anointed one, um, you know, or as Lord. It seems to be that Jesus as a figure is kind of involved in kind of bringing this kingdom of God or is causing it to become like more real or more widespread or something like that, um, or or just adjusting how people think about the kingdom of God so that it's actually good news for people, um, as opposed to maybe bad news. Um, so, uh, and again, it kind of emphasizes both. It's not just talking about the future. There is a, a present tense to this going on. So remember, Jesus is very present tense oriented. You know, when he says that people are saved, quote unquote, you know, it's always like their faith has saved them like right now. Um and he's also alluded to in that conversation with John 's messengers in the previous story um it's like how do you know that the Kingdom of God is present in that the, in that kind of social revolution that 's taking place where you know blind are seeing and the poor are hearing the good news and stuff like that like that 's the evidence of the kingdom of God, so where God is kind of ruling and where is is kind of where people are accepting the rule of God that's kind of already there, in a sense. Um, and when people accept that rule, there's this, their community and their society starts to look different. And they start to act differently. And they kind of start to follow this kind of new way that Jesus is talking about. So that's kind of interesting. Then we get to this little passage about Herod kind of sandwiched in the middle of it. So while there's these two Kingdom of God messages, there's this Herod message about Herod pressed right into the middle of it. And that's really, I think, intentional for Luke. Uh, we have this story where Herod is confused about Jesus' identity... And so he's perplexed and it's like, who is this about it? Here's the things and he's curious, kind of, he wants to see Jesus. Um, But you wonder what the motive behind his curiosity is. The only thing, the other thing that Luke clues us into about Herod is that he's like, John, I beheaded, but who is this? You know, Um, so um, Herod is the ruler in the land. Like he's kind of like the appointed kingly leader, kind of um, governor person over Israel for the Israelites, um, kind of appointed by um, by Greece, by Greece. Like they let them kind of, um, the empire kind of let them have their own little ruler to kind of watch over their own people. Um, and the only thing we know about him is that he's beheaded the only other prophetic figure that we've had in the story so far. (laughs) Like he's killed John. He put him in jail and then he killed him. Um, and so there's one kingly figure in the story so far, and he's all about killing people that oppose him. And then you have Jesus, the other kingly figure. And what's he all about? Well, when crowds come and follow him, he welcomes them and he speaks to them about the kingdom and he heals those who need to be cured. Luke is directly contrasting these two people. When people oppose Jesus, Jesus is like, okay, just go somewhere else. You know what I mean? When people oppose Herod, they die. Like, like it, Jesus is a very different kind of king than uh, the ones that these people have, you know. And Jesus doesn't hang out in the palace waiting for people to come to him. Like, he's out healing and welcoming crowds. You know, the kingdom of God, as it's shown in Jesus, is kind of uninterested in the power structure and in protecting it. He's too busy helping people, which is kind of interesting. Um, That's the first little part of the text. We're going to jump on to the next, and uh, here's just to show what's coming. We're going to get a series of stories that focus on Jesus and those 12 select group of disciples. Um, and it's going to transition into a new phase of the entire book. So we're headed kind of in from, from act one to act two of Luke. And as we approach that transition, we're going to get a couple little key stories that Luke puts in an or- in a specific order, um, about Jesus as he interacts with his closest group of students who are supposed to represent him. Let's see what happens. Here we go. I'm going to take a drink of my mint mate tea. All right, here we go. The day was drawing to a close and the 12 came to him and said Send the crowd away so that we may go to the surrounding villages and oh sorry send the crowd away so that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside to lodge and get provisions for we are here in a deserted place but Jesus said to them You give them something to eat and they said we have no more than 5 loaves and 2 fish and unless we are to go buy food for all these people for there are about 5,000 men, and he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of about 50 each. So they did so, and, they, and made them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he blessed and broke them, and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd, and all ate and were filled. What was left over was gathered up, and twelve baskets of broken pieces were gathered. So our first little vignette between Jesus and the twelve are um, this just this little this miracle with these with this food, and the disciples at the beginning remember what's one of the great things about um, all of the gospels really, but you know we're getting it hard here in Luke is that um, they don't always do the right thing. They often are so um, aloof or so um, distracted or so petty or something like that, um, and yet these are the people that again Jesus is authorized to be his representatives. <laughs> There, there's a big punchline there. I hope you're picking up on it too. So I'm not just crazy. But so they're like, send the crowd away. Like this crowd has been following them from town to town, and the disciples are like, well, send them into the villages. Um, now, even if there was a large village in there nearby, a large village in their area would be about, about three thousand people. So if there's a town of about three thousand people nearby. That even that town can't feed five thousand people like very easily. You know what I mean? So, so the disciples are like, "Well, send them away to go get hospitality," but there's not room for them. You know, um, so Jesus is like, "You give them something to eat." <laughs> you know, it's just so great. Oh, I like Jesus. Um, You know, and they're like, "Well, we only have five loaves and two fish." So Jesus then does this miracle and. Um, you know, they're they're outside of the villages, they're kind of out in the countryside, and here Jesus is a miracle with bread where he multiplies food so everyone has enough. So um, this little story harkens back, if you're in Luke's audience and you're familiar with the stories of the Old Testament, you would have probably immediately think of two stories. Um, one of them being Moses and leading a bunch of people through the wilderness, and they are out of food, so they pray, and then God has, has bread kind of up here, this manna, special bread kind of appear kind of from the ground that they pick. And then um, there's another story where one of the prophets that has already been aligned as being kind of like a... um a type of person that Jesus is modeling himself after in the story um, named Elisha and there's a miracle where he kind of multiplies food like this um, so so it's tapping into like a prophetic tradition in their culture and Jesus here does it but for 5000 people for way you know like incredible amount of people so and then it says all ate and were filled and remember the word filled has a messianic context to it like people are being saved and satisfied and they're getting what they need, which is something the Messiah is supposed to do. Um, also, fun to note, <clears throat> um, uh, Craig Keener points this out. He's a scholar that I love and I get a lot of stuff from. Uh, he points out that setting people up in groups of 50 uh, might have looked to some people like he was setting them up to be um, like military ranks when there was a crowd of this size to put them in little individual groups of 50 each. Um, so it could be that Luke and Jesus are, are using the story to characterize the people that follow Jesus as being like his army. And here the army isn't getting ready to go and attack or, or defend even. The army is getting ready to just receive God's miraculous goodness upon them. Isn't, it? isn't that interesting? So if you're part of God's army, you're just there to, to talk about and receive how, how good God is. <laughs> Uh, something to think about. Anyway, uh, and then we have uh, something. One fun quick thing I want to point out: There's Luke uses the word twelve a few times here in one little story. There's twelve disciples, and at the end they gather twelve baskets. So the disciples kind of have a little bit of uh, not not a big moment of like doubting Jesus, but they have a moment where they kind of don't get it right. And in the end, kind of each of them is there left holding their one b- basket of broken pieces that they've gathered up. Um, so you got to kind of imagine this kind of as a teaching moment for them of being like, oh yeah yeah. I, that's, this basket, you know? (laughs) Um, and, uh, yeah. And 12, uh, having 12 baskets left over might also be a way that, uh, they're, they're tapping into, um, Israel had 12 tribes when it started out. Um, so it's kind of like all the people, when you gather people together, might be in like groups of 12, you know, or, or 12 was the kind of number that symbolized completion. Remember, I think we've talked about that before and here there's 12 baskets left over. So there's even enough food left over for everyone, you know, kind of a sense. It's just overflowing you know, when the kingdom comes. So that's kind of interesting. Let's continue on in the story. Once when Jesus was praying alone with only the disciples near him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others, Elijah and still others that one of the ancient prophets has arisen. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered the Messiah of God. Jesus sternly ordered and commanded them not to tell anyone, saying, The Son of Man must undergo great suffering, and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Then he said to them all, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, and take up their cross daily, and follow me, for those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world, but lose or forfeit themselves? Those who are ashamed of me and my words, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of, his, and of the holy angels. But truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God." Um, so here we go. Um, this is a big moment where, um, it's, it's central to the book where as people so far have been questioning unclear maybe about Jesus's identity. It's, it's been kind of made clear to us as the readers, but along the way in the story, it's, it's kind of left in question. And, um, and yeah, they've just kind of, they're in front of or have just left this crowd, and Jesus is like, to the, twi- you know, only his closest students near him, and he says, you know, who the crowds say that I am. And they're like, well, this or this or this or this. Interestingly enough, they give the same answer that Herod kind of pondered is in his head well, John the Baptist I beheaded, but you know, who is this person, you know? Um, so Elijah or others or ancient prophets or something, you know, like that. Um, and Jesus takes us to kind of lock in his identity with them because Peter kind of guesses it right. Um, so yay, Peter, um, you know, he's like, you're the Messiah of God. And Jesus says, you know, okay, like, but I, the son of man, you know, have to endure this. So don't tell anybody. He doesn't want a lot of hubbub remember about this. Um, and so, um, it, it mirrors what's going on with Herod. So as people are kind of, um, questioning his identity, this close group, at least it's, it's kind of more fully revealed to right here. Um, and then Jesus gives this, this really interesting prediction. Um, the son of man, you know, uh, yes, I am the Messiah, but here's, what's going to happen to the Messiah. Um, I am the Messiah, but it's not going to happen. You know, the, 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 the kingdom of God is not going to come through, you know, triumph or through conquest, you know? Um, it's going to come through suffering and then resurrection, you know, and, and in fact, suffering at the hands of the people who you think would be the most ready for me to be there, the elders, chief priests, and the scribes. Um, but he's going to be killed and then on the third day be raised. So, um, this would be, uh, absurd. Absurd to Jesus' audience at the time. You know, um, absurd being the root word of the word absurd, the way Kikigart uses, is kind of like to hurt your ears to think or to hear. Um, to even hear it would be like, not like, you know, like painful, confusing. Like it would hit them and be like, what? You know, like that doesn't make sense because um, there's lots of expectations about what the Messiah was going to be like and do and what kind of person they were going to be and stuff like that. Um, but there's not really anywhere laid out or or anyone was proposing that the Messiah was going to come and suffer and die. Um, you know, and so for them to hear like, yeah, I am the Messiah. I'm going to save every, all of you and everyone, but, uh, I'm going to do it through suffering and death. Like that just doesn't, that doesn't compute. That doesn't make sense. Um, you know, and, and this has been kind of foreshadowed a little bit earlier when um, we had uh, Simeon, the prophet, when Jesus was just a baby, saying, you know, this baby is going to be responsible for the rising and falling of many Israel and be going to be a sign that will be opposed. So it was the tone was kind of set. But this is the first time where Jesus really um, says he, he predicts his death for the first time. And it's not going to be the only time that he does it, um, even leading up to his death. Um And here, Jesus also says, you know, and it's not just going to be me. If you want to be one of my followers, you have to, quote unquote, take up your cross daily. Um, That is a direct allusion to the idea of crucifixion. Crucifixion, if you don't know, um, was an ancient form of execution where they nailed you to a post and let you kind of hang there until you died. It was a really considered a really brutal and nasty way, even amongst other brutal and nasty ways to kill people. It was kind of used... Um, for people who are criminals in the way that they wanted to make kind of like an example of because you were kind of left hanging on a post and if they did this in a public place you would have to see it um if you're just a commoner so um and jesus uses that language of suffering and death about his followers as well so that's really um interesting and so this is kind of the beginning of a big plot turning point you know up until now jesus had some opposition but here he's like okay guys it's As we're headed forward, you've just seen me do something amazing and I could sit here all day and just, just give everyone all the food that they want, but that's not how the story's going to go. It's in fact, it's, it's only going to get worse from here. Um, you know, this story isn't, it doesn't have a happy ending heading towards it, you guys. And he kind of makes that clear with them. Um, let's go ahead and continue on in the story. I'm going to take a drink first. All right. Um, so here, continuing on in the text. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him, Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while they were praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep. But since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us take three dwelling, make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. <laughs> While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. So again, this is the next little story between Jesus and some of his disciples. We all actually don't even have just the 12. We have only like the three, Peter, James, and John, which who seem to kind of have a special role or relationship in Jesus and they kind of get to see even behind the curtain a little bit more. And uh, so they go on a special prayer retreat uh, up to the top of the mountain to pray and um, and up a mountain, whenever you see a mountain in biblical literature, that's very important because, uh, People went up on mountains in the in the ancient world as, as special places that were kind of sacred and, and close to God, things like that. They were usually used as places of worship. Um, all the way beginning back, you know, we have a, a many times in the Old Testament, you know, Abraham climbs a mountain to make sacrifice. Um, Moses, in particular, um, after they escape from Egypt with all the Israelites, um, they stay at the bottom of the mountain. He goes up by himself alone to the top. Jesus takes three people, which is interesting, but he goes up to the top um, while Moses is up there. There's also a cloud while Moses up there. There's also a bright light and glory and, and a, and a voice of God. So this story again is king back into a key story in the old Testament that if you're in Luke's audience, you would be like, Oh yeah, this is very familiar. Like it's a kind of story, you know? Um, and, uh, and here when Jesus does it, um, you know, we, we see him meeting with both Moses and Elijah, which is, which is interesting. Um, so they kind of appear and they talk of his departure, which Jesus has just predicted and what he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So here we go. Here's the first moment of the story that kind of targets in on where the action is going to take place in the third act. And that's going to be at Jerusalem, um, so it's kind of a twist on this moment that Moses had going up the mountain where he received the law from God and then took it down to the people. Um, that's kind of the inaugural moment of the nation of Israel. And um, and here Jesus is having his kind of inaugural moment, but it's in preparing for his death, not in his going into a promised land. Um, and uh, so it seems like Moses and Elijah, it, I, it, it doesn't really spell it out clearly in the story why they're there talking with Jesus, but it could be that they're kind of um speaking of his departure you know maybe they're kind of showing support you know in a way or 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 um you know kind of uh yeah I'll just leave it at that my, the word that I want to use is escaping my brain but um you know so they're kind of helping Jesus kind of get ready for this and prepare there we go that's the word I want to use and so um peter then you know um is like you know um, hey let's let's make dwellings let's stay here let's make this a sacred place and um, and then it says not knowing what he said. And I don't know if that little tag in there is, it's supposed to be humorous or, or what it, I find it humorous. I think it's funny. Um, in other gospels, it's, it, it kind of has an almost more humorous twist on it, but, um, there's no response from Jesus, but it's obviously like, no, we're not here to build dwellings we're, we're, we're moving on. Um, you know, the, the point isn't to stay on the mountain, it's to go back down. Um, and then we hear the, you know, the voice, the voice of God comes. Um, and this voice now isn't giving law, it's just giving the son instead. This is my son, my chosen, listen to him. Um, so instead of giving a law for the people to follow, it's, it's giving the son himself. Um, and what he's teaching. So that's kind of interesting. Um, we've heard the voice before, Jesus' baptism, where it identifies Jesus, you are my son, my beloved, in whom I'm well pleased. Now Jesus' identity has been locked in, so now it's all about mission and action. It's like, go, he's chosen, he's going to do something, listen to him. Um, and... uh And yeah, um, so they need to move on. So let's go ahead and move on with the story with them. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Just then a man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child. Suddenly a spirit seizes him and all at once he shrieks. It convulses him until he foams at the mouth. It mauls him and will scarcely leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, You faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon dashed him to the ground in convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And all were astounded at the greatness of God. While everyone was amazed at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands. But they did not understand this saying, its meaning was concealed from them so that they could not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying so um, just as Moses in the Moses story goes down from the mountain and finds Israel being unfaithful if you haven 't read that story when he goes down um, they 've kind of given up on the God that just helped them escape slavery out of Egypt and they they fashioned their own God in the shape of a golden calf. You know, and um, here Jesus goes down and he finds his followers also also, also faithless. Um, and so Jesus, when he answers, um, you faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and bear with you? Um, it could be that Jesus is really just that upset or tired or frustrated. I, I don't want to remove that from the story and just paint Jesus as someone who never feels that way. Um, it could also be that Jesus is kind of taking on the type as Moses did, of going down and finding people unfaithful and being frustrated with them. Um, the first time Moses does it, he breaks the the law tablets, and then has to go back up and get new ones and come back down. Um, Jesus doesn't have to go back up; he just comes down once. But he does declare, "Ah, you're, you know, you've you've been found faithless." Um, so people at the bottom of the mountain are unfaith are faithless. Um, here, real quick, we'll point out that the word amazed is used again. Um, and everyone's amazed and astounded because he just did this amazing act. But Jesus immediately, um, because the story is getting more intense, he kills the party quickly. So instead of everyone kind of delighting in it together, he says, no, 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 no. Let these words sink into your ears. This is where we're headed. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed. You all are all happy with me now, but that's not how it's going to be. Um, so he predicts his betrayal at, at, um, again um, for a second time. So let's go ahead and continue on. An argument arose as to which of them, so these are all the disciples, so an argument arose among the disciples as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, aware of their inner thoughts, took a little child and put it by his side and said to them, whoever welcomes this child in my name, welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me. For the least among you all is the greatest. And John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. So, um, <laughs> so they're, they're, they're walking down and Jesus already said, you know, we're headed somewhere bad. It's going to get rough. It's going to be awful. We're not going to win. You know, I'm going to die. And immediately the disciples, as they're all kind of falling behind him they 're arguing about which of them is the greatest, um, so again uh, we 're getting another story about Jesus and his disciples interacting in a special way that 's locking in who Jesus is and the kind of work that they 're doing um, and their role their relationship is kind of this special group, you know these inner twelve is kind of going to their heads, because now they're talking about, well, who's the best? You know um, you, you might think that if, if it follows the last story, that Peter, James, and John you know, maybe have a good case for that. Well, we're the best. We're the three who got to go up and see some amazing things that we're not going to tell you about yet, because it's said that we're not supposed to, you know what I mean? Um, um, and so Luke places, interestingly enough, if he's arranging the stories at all, he puts this story right after the story where Jesus has called them all faithless and perverse, where they fail at being able to cast the demon out of this little kid. Um, so immediately after they all fail and they're all kind of chumps, they all start arguing about who's the best. <laughs> <laughs> so talk about fragile egos. Um Uh, so there's an ironic twist there. Um, I hope you find the humor in it as well. You know, and then Jesus grabs a kid and look at the language he uses. Whoever welcomes this child in my name. So he's already sent them out to be messengers, to be welcomed. Um, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, Jesus says. So he's talking about people being sent. So he's like, yeah, you guys were sent by me. You're my special group of people who were authorized that should be welcomed as I am wherever you go, um, and are sent by me to do special, amazing things that not everyone gets to do. But you know, what? I could just get children to do this. <laughs> you know, he's like Jesus is like, I could, I could authorize this child in my name. You know, um, so don't, don't think that because you're the, you know, apostles, you know, because you're one of these special twelve that gets to do special things like this, that it means you're any better. Than each other or the other people who are following me, I could let children do this. So get your crap together, <laughs> um, and then um, immediately followed by it. John is again. We have the the character John, one of these one of his disciples, who compares himself. To someone else who's outside of their group. So remember, it's a it's an in out conversation they're having. So John, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, but and we tried to stop him because he's no one of us special people. You know what I mean? Um, and and Jesus just says, don't stop him. Like like like. And he puts this story right after the disciples have failed at an exorcism. So the disciples fail at exorcism, and this other guy is casting out demons in Jesus' name. Like, this guy is getting it right. And John wants to stop him because he's not in their special elite group. <laughs> that really shows you where, like, these people's heads and hearts are at. Um, and Jesus' response is like, no, don't. Like, whoever's not against you is for you. Like, remember, Jesus, the story here is focusing in. And it's going to start happening quicker. And it's going to start getting more and more intense. The opposition is going to get greater. And Jesus is just like, we don't have time to fight with people who are doing good things and who are getting it right. When you guys don't even get it right, like we don't have time for that. Other people are going to be outright opposing us, and we focus on those people. Like, get your head in the game, you guys. So <laughs> it's, really interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, I love this part of the story. Let's, let's go ahead and continue on. It's, it's only getting better. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I don't have this in my notes, but I'm going to stop real quick right here. This is the sentence where everything turns in the book. So the focus has been that Jesus has kind of been traveling around from villages, villages. Now it's focusing on it's the time. The appointed time is getting near and he's going to go to Jerusalem. Let's see what happens as they start out. And Jesus sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But the Samaritans did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> but he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds have the air. Birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go proclaim the kingdom of God. And another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So here we've had this big turning point in the book where the focus turns from Jesus traveling around teaching to he's on a mission going headed straight to Jerusalem. So um, the way I've kind of characterized it in the past um, is that Jesus has kind of been geographically, he's he goes to Jerusalem twice, once as a baby, and then once as a child at least that we get a story of, and then he never goes back as his ministry starts. Um, so he's been going around traveling, teaching, healing, doing amazing things, and he's almost kind of intentionally stayed away from Jerusalem. You could kind of look at it as he's kind of, I might have said this on the podcast before, he's kind of been almost circling around and traveling around the outskirts of Jerusalem like a shark and now he's got his sights focused on it and he's headed right on it Um, and it's very intentional that Jesus is doing it this way Um, and Luke has has intentionally organized the stories in a way so that everything that happens outside of Jerusalem happens first and now that everything in the story that happens towards or in Jerusalem is is going to start happening. Um, so Jesus, as he travels from, um, kind of his hometown area that he's in to get to Jerusalem, there's another County in between and it's called Samaria, um, where the Samaritans live. And these people are always at odds, um, at least at this time in history with the people in Israel and the the Israelites who are in Galilee on the other side of them. And they have a, a, like an ongoing feud, um, that's, that's been going on for a long time. Um, and maybe I'll go into it in more detail in another podcast, but just to say they're kind of, they're, they're like brother rivals almost in a sense, cause they come from the same tradition, but they had a split a couple hundred years before. Um, and they actually split in a way that they have their own governmental sites. They have their own, um, holy sites where they worship, um, and where their, their, their sacred, um, kind of cult centers around and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, devout Israelites, would often, if they had to travel um, to Jerusalem and they were in Galilee, if they were devout, they would often take a long route around Samaria to, to avoid these people that they thought were less lesser folks, that were unworthy, that were doing it wrong. Um, but also because it might even be a dangerous trip, because Samaritans at the time were known, if someone did try to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem through their town or through their county, would stand at the roads and heckle people um, and basically give them grief. Um, but Jesus is like, no, I'm going to take the route right through these other people and I want to stay with them. Um, so he sends messengers ahead, um, to find them a place to stay, to see if someone will be hospitable towards them. Um, uh, you know, it's it. It goes along with the theme of Jesus always wants to throw the seeds of the of the word of the kingdom. He wants to teach and heal and stuff with anyone who will receive him anywhere he can. He doesn't. He never like intentionally like avoids people. Um, and for him to want to travel through Samaria and want to stay there and experience their hospitality. Um, to some people who are Pharisees or some people who are Jewish nationalists, like Israelite nationalists, that would have been an offensive act that Jesus was doing that to, but Jesus does it anyway, because Jesus doesn't care. Um, uh, but he gets rejected because, and it's, and it gives us the reason the Samaritans are like, well, if your intention is to go, go to Jerusalem, um, you know, and, and do big, important things there, like if that's where the focus of your energy is, well, then we don't want you here. Like, we're not going to let you stay. Um which is which is not nice. Um but again, they're also bitten by that rivalry that's that's really just kind of making their hearts real bitter. Um and so the bitterness then comes out on the part of Jesus's own followers. Like these people who have been following him and maybe have already heard Jesus say things like, Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, stuff like that. James and John, two of his closest students, um, are like, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And, and when we hear the word fire, we're going to think of two things. If we're in Luke's original audience, we're going to think of first a story about um, one of the prophets, Elijah, who, remember, is a story that, that connects with Jesus' story so far in Luke in a number of very deliberate ways. Um, Elijah, short story, long story short, had a showdown with a bunch of pagan prophets. Um, at the end of the story, um, Elijah calls down fire that burns up the prophets and kills them. <laughs> um to kind of uh, burn up these pagans, you know what I mean? And so here are James and John being like, Jesus, isn't that the moment when you get rejected and these people have rejected God? Doesn't that mean that God really wants to burn them? So can we be the ones to call down and command that fire to consume them, huh? 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 Like with almost with toothy smiles on their faces, I wonder. Um We also might think of, um, we've heard language like this before as John the Baptist has spoken of it. When he talks about what he thinks the Messiah is coming to do, you know, the chaff will be, you know, thrown into unquenchable fire, you know? So there's even people at Jesus's time who thinks that this is the work that the Messiah is supposed to be all about. Like people that oppose him are going to be, you know, are going to burn, you know, literally. And Jesus here, it says he turns and rebukes them like no words, like no teaching moment or anything like that. He just says, No. And then they went under, you can almost, I wonder if it's sharing Jesus's exasperation with them earlier from you faithless and perverse generation. You know what I mean? It's like, no, we're not going to call down fire and burn them. Like, so Jesus responds to this unwelcoming Samaritan village with, with mercy instead of fire, which is just like Jesus, um, as we've already seen in Luke. Um, and then we get these three little interesting stories of three different, um, people, that, um, either want to, or Jesus invites to follow him. Um, but Jesus again is very focused on the mission. We don't have time to dilly dally. We don't have time to rest. We don't have time to wait. Earlier in the book, Jesus is kind of like, hey, what? Someone wants me to come to their house and heal their daughter. What? Someone wants me to come to their house and eat and drink and be merry. Sure. We'll do that. But here, Jesus is like, we're not, we're not stopping. Foxes have holes and birds of the Arab nests. but I don't have anywhere, you know, we're not headed somewhere to like my place. You know, um, I'm not here to establish something I'm, you know, like, like there's no palace that I'm headed towards as the Messiah. Um, we've got nothing, you know, I'm, I don't even have as much as animals have, um, you know, we're dependent on hospitality and we're going to be vulnerable, you know? Um, so just be ready for that if you want to follow me, um, you know? Um, and then the second one, uh, this, this person who, who wants to go bury their father first. Now, likely, most likely this guy is talking about a second burial. So in burial customs at the time, once someone died, you buried them immediately. We've talked about that in an earlier story, like the funeral procession is happening immediately when this person dies because, um, corpses were unclean. So you wanted to get them out as quickly as possible. Um, so right when someone died, the funeral started, you took them out, you buried them. You would bury them for a while and let their body decompose for about a year. And then you would have a second burial where you went in and kind of collected their bones and put them in, and sometimes often they would keep them in like a box, like a memorial box, um, that then they could put somewhere else. And we've actually, um, archaeologists have found like these boxes, if, if I remember right, they're called estuaries or something like that, um, of bones. Um, so they kind of collect the bones and then and then they could use that grave, you know, for someone else. Um And so this guy isn't just saying, oh, let me go finish the funeral. He's potentially saying, I need to stay here and bury, you know, do the second burial. That could be up to a year. And Jesus is like, no, we don't have time for that. Let the dead bury their own dead. (laughs) Which is, you know, if you're in a metal band, there you go. Um, You know, but as for you, like you, you should go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Like it's happening now. Like we don't have time to wait. Um, But even if this guy was asking for a long time to wait, I mean, if this guy was a son, he was honoring his father by doing the burial, which is a custom that he was like looked upon and required to do. He had an obligation to do it. And for Jesus to say, no, this is more important. That's, that's almost like heresy. Um, you know, that's, that's breaking a very deeply grained social custom. And then, um, number three, um, uh, we have the person who just wants to go say bye at their house. And Jesus is like, I'm, you know, no one who puts a hand to the plow and turns back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now it doesn't mean that Jesus says, you, 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 can't follow me. You know, he's not rejecting all these people. He's just kind of saying, look, if you want to follow me, this is happening right now. You got to be ready. Um, and this, this does mimic a story of where both Elijah, the prophet goes and picks Elisha to be his replacement prophet And Elisha is allowed to go back and say goodbye. So again, these two prophets keep coming up in the story of Luke because Jesus is often described as doing the same kind of things as them, but always with a twist. And here Jesus is like, no, I'm sorry. If you want to come and follow after me, um, you don't have time to go back and say goodbye. We don't have time for that. We got to go. So that's kind of interesting. That's the end of the text. Let's go ahead and jump into our lo-fi questions. Oh man, this, this, I brew my own mint mate tea now Anyway, thanks Brian Peters for turning me on to Monte. I don't know if he listens to this, but if you talk to him you can tell him I gave him a shout out. Anyway, here we go. Um so love my questions. Number one, God, you know, this God question, what is God like in the story? If God is a character in a story, how does the story characterize him? Um Well, um, if we're looking at Jesus as kind of a representative of God as the son or the one who is sent, you know, so he's coming in at least representing him, if not an embodiment, of divine being there as God amongst these people, um, then he's certainly a kingly figure because he's talked about as a king. But remember, it's always in contrast to the other kings of the time, like this Messiah, this king that Jesus is, is a very different kind of king than the kings the people have. Um, and even if you look back in the old Testament, you know, if you look at the list of kings and watch what they do, like, you know, most of them, very few of them are, are spoken of well, even so, even their own Kings and their own tradition are bad, but the Kings of the time, like when Jesus is around, you're talking either Herod, you know, if you're looking from an Israelite point of view, or you're talking like the emperor from the emperor's point of view, or from the Greek point of view, I mean, um, and Jesus is so radically different than both of them. I mean, he sends their people out with nothing. He wants them to go be vulnerable, but to trust people and to not live in luxury and not take things and to not, um, you know, from town to town and, and, and make money off of this thing or possessions off of this thing. It's like, no, you, you don't keep anything with you. You take what you need and then you move on. Um, uh, and that's the way that Jesus goes. You know, he doesn't have a home. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but I don't even have a house, you know. Um, so uh, and, and yet at the same time, anywhere Jesus goes, if a crowd shows up in this part of the story in particular, um, it's when a crowd shows up, they kind of crash Jesus's retreat with his students. But it says that he welcomes them. And he tells them about the kingdom of God and he cures their diseases. And then instead of sending them away hungry, he feeds them and fills them. You know, he's inviting them to be his military. But that military is to be all about going out and doing the work of telling people about the kingdom of God, welcoming others, curing diseases, you know, um, and being filled by God. So it's a very radically different kind of king. Um, You know, if, if, if this king has a military that he's going on conquest with, it's like a conquest of... Goodness, it's almost like God is doing the conquest over the people, you know, and it's all about goodness, Um, you know, um, and some people don't accept it, um, you know, um, but instead of beheading people that oppose him, Jesus is just like, okay, shake the dust off your feet and keep going like this, this, the, as a king, God is granting people the freedom to reject him and to not be part of it or to not welcome him. You know, as Jesus said earlier, like God is kind and merciful to the wicked. You know what I mean? And Jesus is here modeling this in this part of the story, which is just really interesting. I mean, back in the day and even now, like if you're king, it's it's good to be king. You get whatever you want, you know? And that usually doesn't make you a very good person because that kind of power spoils you. And Jesus it's constantly rejects, you know, the luxury and the power and stuff like that. That's really interesting. Um and if Jesus doesn't have any power, he's constantly giving it away. He's authorizing and empowering others, even people who are dubious characters who constantly get it wrong. He's giving his power and his ability away to other people so they can go do good things. And then, lastly, as a king, instead of being someone who makes other people suffer the way Herod has, you know, he's beheaded John, he's actually being the one willing to undergo great suffering. He's already, you know, laid out hey, I'm going to be, undergo great suffering and I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to be killed. Like, that's that's not what king's planned for. If you're the king, you're the last one to suffer. And here Jesus is like, no, I'm actually going to be the first one. Um, uh, God, in the story, like moving away from the king thing, God, if you look at it in the story, God gets frustrated and upset. Like, God's not untouchable. God's not immovable. God's not um, stale and even-keeled and just the same all the time, you know? Like there's a moment where Jesus gets upset and he's like, "You faith has said perverse generation. How much longer do I have to be with you? Like, you know, um, like God's not unaffected. And that's kind of something interesting. If that sounds weird to you, um, I might venture to say that you've gotten or you've been taught maybe an idea of God. That's more influenced by Greek philosophy than by, um, the Hebrew kind of version of God. Cause the Hebrew God is, he gets his hands dirty. He's involved in the world and he, you know, has emotions and, and gets affected. And I, I'm using the word he a lot, but I, when I shouldn't, you know, he, she, the, you know, God, the spirit, the, you know, um, the creator um, is is affected by people. And here Jesus reflects that he gets tired. He gets exasperated. He's very human in that sense. Um Um, we can talk about that more on a, on a future day, you know, or if we have a, if we ever have a lo-fi theology podcast, we'll get into that more. But if, if that perks your interest, talk to me on the Facebook page about it. I'd love to dig into that with you. Um, but also at the same time, um, a couple, one last thing, God, um, You know, if Jesus is God, he's not a religious nitpicker. You know, he doesn't make them stop the other exorcists who's not part of their special group. You know, he's not interested in the feud that's going on between the Samaritans and Israel and judging between who's right and who's wrong. He just wants to reach out and be good to everybody. He's willing to stay at anyone's house. Um, It's almost as if to Jesus, a lot of the human conflict is too trivial for him to even pay mind to or to care about. I mean, remember from an earlier kitchen conversation... I mean, from God's point of view, if you can read the matrix code of the world, it's like atoms are collecting together and then are fighting other atoms over which atoms are the best atoms and which set of, you know, it's, it's like these goofy people are fighting over which holy site is the best one. When here, Jesus is like everywhere we go, it's a holy site, you know, and they have the ability to reject you. So that's why you, you shake the dust off your feet, but you take that with you wherever you go. You take the kingdom. That's really interesting. That's an interesting God. Um, question two, people. What are people like? You know, and, and who does well and who's spoken of well in the story and who's not? Um, people in this story can carry the good news and can bring favor from God and healing and goodness to other people. Um, so Jesus, if you want to say like, well, Jesus doesn't count because he's kind of, he's, he, he is human, but he's also God. You know, he's a son of God, but he's also the son of man, you know, whatever. So let's just look at the disciples. They're they're empowered and given everything they need to go bring the good news in the same way that Jesus does, which is really interesting. Like that's what people are like in the story, and for Luke, you know, as he's telling that to an audience, like that's um that's some that's a teaching thing to them. Um, People also in the story are hospitable and generous. There's people who take these disciples in. they travel around and preach and do good things and then they all get back together, you know? So obviously some places they went, you know, people were good to them. And just, we actually don't get a story where people, you know, it's not like they come back and they're like, ah, everyone rejected us. It's like, no, they come back and they're like, oh, they, here's all the things we did. So they must've experienced some hospitality and generosity. There's people everywhere who are willing to receive the message about the kingdom that, that Jesus has. Um, and so that's what people are like. Um, people are also power hungry and violent and, and characterized and are enc- encapsulated by Herod. You know, um, he's curious about Jesus, but mostly curious, maybe out of a defensive posture. He's like, I already killed John. Who else? Who, who, who but who's this new guy and what do I have to do about it? Um, uh, people in Luke, uh, nine are needy. Um, you know, they don't even know Jesus identity, identity. They don't have it locked down. They don't really know who he is and what he's all about yet, but 5,000 of them are following him around. And that's probably mostly to get what he needs. It seems like they do want to hear him teach, but they're also just hungry or they, they're diseased and they need cures or they have demons in them and they need to be exercised. Like they're just needy. Like people are needy. Um, and, uh, even when they don't have all the religious theology figured out, they're like, oh, here's someone who's doing something great. Let's go find him <laughs> and let's follow him around and stick with him. Um, and people fail, um, characterized in the, in the, in the, disciple stories. We get these three, you know, a few great stories where the disciples are kind of thick headed or, or they're, or they're prone towards violence as much as, you know, other bad guys quote unquote in the story are, or they get confused about Jesus' identity just as much as others are, you know, or they lack faith and they screw up, you know, at, at doing what they've already done. Like they've already been sent out to go heal people and, and cast out demons and then they fail at it when they try it again. That's kind of interesting, you know, or they're arguing and fighting over who's the best, You know, that's just what people are like in the story of Luke, um, you know, and other people, when Jesus goes to Samaria, aren't hospitable to him because he's not there for them, you know, and then his disciples who are supposed to be good and the heroes in the story call for fire and violence. That's what people are like in, in, in Luke nine. Um, so why this story? So why did Luke write down these stories? Why did people bother to tell him these stories? Why did people keep this book around and carry it for years? And why are we still telling it today? Um, Jesus predicts his death in the story and he kind of lays out the pathway forward for a Messiah. And so I think people who then go and follow and believe certain things about Jesus and who he is, like if they buy into the story um, and buy into the book of Luke altogether, um, as they read part of this story, they're kind of being taught this idea that what happens to Jesus at the end of the book, spoiler alert, he dies, um, wasn't an accident, you know? Um, And it wasn't like... So, in that way, I mean Jesus is kind of a victim, but he's not like a a victim in the sense that um he didn't see it coming or wasn't or wasn't willing to submit to to taking on that role um interestingly enough um you know that this was an accident that Jesus has an understanding that this is the pathway forward and this is the plan and so here's where we're headed um and so you know whereas some people as Luke is writing the story, you might be looking at what what these early followers of Jesus believe and be like, Well you're just wrong. Like that's silly. Like messiahs aren't supposed to lose. Like messiahs don't die. But the people reading the story are like, oh well he did die, but that wasn't a loss. Like that was actually how he, he kind of won. In the end, and that 's how god 's you know kingdom was established and, and, and made real on earth was through that, so it wasn 't that that was a mistake or a loss or something that set people back. it was actually something that set Jesus forward in a sense, and so they kind of keep this prediction part of the story around. Um, So uh, it could be kind of used as a story as they kind of argue and debate with each other or with people outside of the religious community about whether or not Jesus, you know, is is really who he says he was, you know, if he was really the Messiah. Um, They probably keep some of these stories around is that the stories in this chapter really lock in the identity of Jesus. So we hear God, you know, like this voice from heaven on top of the mountain saying, you know. This is my chosen. You know what I mean. Jesus affirms his identity. Um, Peter affirms his identity as the Messiah and the Son as the chosen. Um, And Jesus reaffirms his death twice in in the same story. So this this kind of circular thing about like okay, like yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but this is how the Messiah is going to go forward and what it's going to look like. So that plays a very important part of the story Um, and would become part of, if you were an early follower of Jesus, this would become central to part of your faith. Like they believed in Jesus as being the Messiah. Um, And also, I think they might carry this story around. And I think people might carry this story around for now the last 2000 years because Jesus is saying, okay, if you want to be my follower, you actually have to follow in the same way of... Possibly enduring being ready to endure suffering like the way of Jesus is a way of self-sacrifice not of self-gain like if Jesus is presenting himself as the example for what they're supposed to do um, Jesus says you, you take up your cross every day like you be ready to be to die you know and. Um, you know in the same way that's kind of touched on in the sto- in the feeding story where jesus they're like oh these people need food and jesus like you give them something to eat like your job here is not to be my elite people who get all kinds of goodies and, and, and um you know benefits from being close to me it's like in fact if if you're the closer to me that means that you are supposed to go be the least like the one who gives away the most who serves the most who sacrifices the most and if there's a people who have this story and they carry it with them and they tell it to each other often, you would think that that would become a central part of their character and how they interact with the rest of the world and how they interact with each other. And that would make them a very particular kind of people in the world. Um, People who believe that they are sent to proclaim and to heal and to care for others and not worry about being great in the world. But actually have to give up a lot. You know, as Jesus runs into these people at the end, who all try and jump on as followers of him, but Jesus lays out, he's like, no, you, you, you might lose your, your home. You might lose your family. You might lose some of your comfort. There's no time. We have to get going. Um, and so I think that maybe that's, it's a challenging story. But maybe people have held on to that story because they saw that they were like, oh my gosh, if 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 this story is true, that's, that means something very big. About the world and about how we should live in it and what kind of people we should be, um, and that's really interesting that they kept that story, um, as opposed to a story that says like, oh, you know, we did the right thing and we were the right ones and we followed Jesus, so therefore we should get everything that we want. Um, instead, it's like, no, we're going to be constantly challenged to give away every anything that we have because we're here for the life of the rest of the world, just like Jesus was. That's really interesting. We're going to talk more about that in the kitchen. But that's kind of it for today. Um, thank you for, for sticking around at the Lo-Fi Electionary. You're going to hear the tag at the end soon. That just gives you some ways to connect with us. Um, that's the story as I see it. That's what I think God is like in this part of the story and people and, and what I think is kind of to be gained out of the story. If you were to carry and tell the story for for in your life. Um, if you see something else that I don't, please um, either shoot me an email or, um, or jump onto the Facebook page and, and let's chat about it. Because I want to hear. I want to learn from you. So thank you for sitting here and, and joining us. Um, and uh, I'll see you in the kitchen in a few days. Have a great week, everyone. Hi, everyone. I just want to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. If you liked the podcast, please help us out. You can review, subscribe, and share the podcast any way you can. Um, the more people we get in on the game, the funner this is going to be. Uh, if you want to participate in the discussion for this episode, you can come visit our website at kevinlester.net and follow the links to the podcast and then to the link for this episode. Um, you can also find our podcast on Facebook, and we can discuss and, and keep things going on there. Uh, just search Facebook for LoFi fi Electionary, and you'll find us. You can also get in touch with me, Kevin, directly at lofi at kevinlester.net, and that's lofi with no dash, so L-O-F-I at kevinlester.net. And you can also find me on Twitter at lofikevin. With no dash again, so at LoFi Kevin. Um, that's kind of it. So thank you for coming and we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening.